Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 94. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Before we get going this week, Bells of Peace, the national bell tolling scheduled for 11 a.m. local on November 11th, well, it's really catching on. We want to thank the nearly 5,000 organizations, churches, communities, and individuals that have pledged to join Bells of Peace. A shout out to the 36 states and territories and now the more than 50 cities and townships that are issuing proclamations for their communities to toll the bell. Thank you to the U.S. Navy that has committed all Navy ships, Navy and Marine Corps bases, all to toll the bells. That's tens of thousands of men and women who are going to take a moment on 11-11 at 11 a.m. to reflect. This grassroots effort for Veterans Day 2018 promises to be a national moment of thanks to the nearly 4.7 million who served our nation and especially to the 116,516 who lost their lives. You know, these special veterans had nearly been forgotten in the shadow of our past, so thank you for helping to honor them. And if you're hearing about this for the first time and you're wondering how you can participate, it's easy. Just Google Bells of Peace. You'll find out how to sign up, and if you don't have a bell, no problem. We've made a special smartphone app for you. So please, plan to take just a few moments on Veterans Day at 11 a.m. local to stop and reflect that so much of what we all have today in this country is a gift from the past from a very special group of men and women that fought for all of us in the now less forgotten war that changed the world. In this week's World War I Centennial News podcast, we start a hundred years ago with a story of refugees and liberation as the occupied towns of northern France and Belgium see the invaders pulling back. Mike Schuster expands our view with the German perspective on the events of October 1918. At this moment, a hundred years ago, the fighting and the dying are far from over, as Dr. Edward Lengel points out with a story from the New Jersey Doughboys of the 29th Division. We're going to hear from Belgian orchestral musician Maestro Rick Gascari, who tells us about an upcoming cross-national commemorative concert in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Brian Neumann joins us from the Center for Military History for part two of our look at CMH's commemorative efforts. Our special guest and renowned expert on pigeons follows up our World War I war tech segment we ran a few weeks ago on those special winged friends. We learn about a memorial rededication project from Dublin, Georgia. And The Buzz, where Catherine Akey highlights some of the World War I centennial posts and stories from social media. All this week on World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. We're back in 1914, as Germany quickly rolls across, invades and occupies Belgium and much of northeastern France. 
the news reports on Belgian and French refugees, and the often brutal German treatment of civilians in these occupied territories. Now, although some incidents are exaggerated to feed the Allied propaganda machine, life in the occupied territories is not at all pleasant. With America not yet in the war, American Herbert Hoover's Commission for Relief in Belgium works behind the German lines to provide aid for civilians, and especially the children. These humanitarian efforts help to save literally millions of civilian lives. Now, sliding forward in time to 1918. 100 years ago this week, the German troops are retreating towards their homeland, and the refugees are once again on the road. This time, many in hopes of returning to their homes, while some others willingly and unwillingly follow the Germans eastward. Now, back in the United States, the media and the public attention once again turns to these civilians and the hardships they're facing in the war's wake. Interestingly, very little attention is given at this time to the much worse humanitarian crisis faced by civilians in Russia and Eastern Europe, though Hoover will turn his attention to these after the war. Speculation also turns to what Germany will look like post-war, driven by Wilson's October 14 response to the armistice explorations, when he flatly declares that no armistice is possible until Germany shifts from an empire to a democratic government. From the New York Times. Dateline, October 15, 1918. No peace, says Wilson, till Kaiserism ends. And the story reads... The most striking thing in the president's decision is his insistence that there be no peace until the arbitrary power that has been lodged in the hands of William II and those associated with him as constituted authorities responsible for this war and its conduct on the German side has been destroyed or reduced to virtual impotence. And the next day, again in the Times, Dateline, October 16, 1918. Headline, Allies Sweep On in Belgium. And the story goes on to report how thousands of impoverished refugees are sweeping into towns like Brussels and Antwerp or trying to flee into Holland. Now, Hoover's Commission for Relief in Belgium announces its awareness of the growing refugee crisis. But it declares that it can provide enough aid to tide the civilians over so long as the Germans don't plunder the occupied territories as they withdraw. Hoover especially exhorts the Germans not to kill or remove the dairy cattle so that the Belgian babies and children will have enough milk to keep up their nutrition. With President Wilson also warning the Germans that they had better not commit atrocities against the civilians if they hope for an armistice. The world is indeed watching. On October 18, the New York Times announces the latest liberation in a stirring column from correspondent Philip Gibbs. Dateline, October 18, 1918. Headline, Lille taken unharmed. And the story by correspondent Philip Gibbs reads, quote, I have seen the Belgian and French soldiers riding through the liberated towns, cheered by the people who've been prisoners of war in their own houses for all those dreary years, under a hostile rule which was sometimes cruel and always hard, so that their joy is now wonderful to see and makes something break in one's heart at the sight of it because one understands by those women's faces 
by the light in the children's eyes, and by the tears of the old bearded men, what this rescue means to them, and what they suffered. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is also falling apart, as newspapers report a Hungarian declaration of independence and a popular uprising in what will become Czechoslovakia. Even as the German government struggles to decide how to reply to Wilson's demands, the Allied march in northern France and Belgium continues as one town after another is liberated to scenes of popular rejoicing. Now, with all of this happening, unfortunately, the American forces remain stalled in the Meuse-Argonne. The fight is not over yet. With that, we turn to Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. This week, Mike's post focuses on the German homeland. Now, Wilson has declared an end to Germany's imperial power as a precondition to armistice. And the German people themselves are definitely fed up with the war. There's change afoot, but what change? Two great competing political forces are rising in Germany. On the one side, Lenin's communist and socialist Bolshevik revolution. And on the other, Wilson's promise of democratic self-determination. Both of these are of great interest to the German people and foreshadow what will one day become an ideological battle we call the Cold War. But for now, the fighting is still red hot on the Western Front. That's right, Teo. And so the headlines are critical situation for Germany. German leaders beg Kaiser to seek peace. Fear of communist revolution in Berlin. Support for Wilson's peace is growing. And this is special to the Great War Project. In the first week of October, 100 years ago, the domestic political situation inside Germany and the military situation for Germany all along the Western Front were both unraveling. On October 1st, writes historian Martin Gilbert, the British expeditionary force prepared to break through the final obstacles of the German lines on the Western Front, and the Americans get ready to launch a new attack in the Argonne Forest. The German high command begs the Kaiser to issue a German peace offer at once. The German army declares its top military commander is infected with Spartacist, that is, communist and socialist ideas. Gilbert reports soldiers on leave at home were certainly prey to political agitation of the most extreme sort. The communist leaders, Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, were demanding an immediate peace and the end of the monarchy. Not for them, Gilbert reports, the panacea, if such it was, of a democratic or parliamentary monarchy British style. Their aim was revolution and a socialist republic. In Russia, the Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin is elated at the possibility that his goal of an international communist revolution is spreading beyond Russia's borders. In those first four days of October a century ago, Gilbert reports, saw the Allied armies advancing on all sectors of the Western Front. But with this Allied success came news in the same moment of grave difficulties on the American sector of the front. After their food ran out, the Americans there were accidentally hit by an artillery barrage from their own side. They released their last carrier pigeon with an appeal for Americans to stop shelling Americans. This was the episode that became known as the Lost Battalion. At the same time came more news from Germany. Gilbert reports the first German revolution took place on October 2nd, not in the streets, but in the German council chamber. With Germany's situation falling apart, 
German military and political leaders alike urged the Kaiser to declare an immediate truce. On October 4th, a German peace note was sent to the American president, Woodrow Wilson, asking him to agree to an armistice. It was made clear to him by the German and Austrian leaders that this was not to be a surrender, not even an offer of armistice terms, but an attempt to end the war without any preconditions that might be harmful to Germany or Austria. Wilson studies the note, and the war wages on. Inside Germany reports Gilbert, the continuation of the fighting led to an increase in public discontent. Karl Liebknecht, the communist leader, is thrown in prison. His followers demand an end to the monarchy and the establishment of Soviet-style rule in Germany. Gilbert reports, with the disintegration of empires, the struggle of subject peoples intensified. On October 7th, the Regency Council in German-occupied Warsaw invoked President Wilson's principles of self-determination and declared a free and independent Polish state. But still, the war grinds on. The German warmakers remain in control. And that's news from the Great War Project, these days, a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. Moving on to America Emerges, military stories from World War I. Today, Dr. Edward Lengel gives an account of an incident 100 years ago that defines one of the most devastating experiences a military commander can have. The experience of surviving the near-total loss of the men under your command, as Ed recounts the story of the New Jersey Doughboys in the Valley of Death. On October 12, 1918, Captain William J. Redden experienced every combat officer's worst nightmare, not to die, but to survive while losing his entire command. It happened when Doughboys of the 29th Blue and Gray Division's 114th Regiment entered a ravine known as the Valley of Death. 200 walked in, 13 walked out. The 29th Division was known as the Blue and Gray because it was recruited from National Guard formations originating north and south of the Mason-Dixon line. The 114th Regiment came from New Jersey, although replacements from other states had been incorporated since its formation. Captain Redden, commanding the 2nd Battalion's Company B, came from Essex County, New Jersey. A brave and efficient officer dedicated to his men, Redden did not question the need for sacrifice in order to achieve victory. At the beginning of October 1918, General John J. Pershing expanded his offensive in the Meuse-Argonne, delegating troops, including the 29th Division, to capture heights east of the Meuse River. German artillery on these heights had been inflicting heavy casualties on American soldiers advancing to the west, so the Blue and Gray Division had important work to do. On October 12th, the division reached the Bois d'Ormont, which French troops had been trying and failing to capture for years. Now it was the 114th Regiment's turn. Taking up his field glasses, Captain Redden scanned the terrain ahead. He saw a ravine stretching a thousand yards to the north, at the end of which lay thick coils of rusty barbed wire. From where he stood at the ravine's south entrance, Redden could just make out the skeletons of French soldiers scattered along the ravine and piled in front of the wire. That stack of bones marked Company B's objective for the day. The major commanding 2nd Battalion said everything would be all right. Artillery would pound the Germans before the advance. Company B would be one of four from the 1st and 2nd Battalions making the attack, 
and they would have support from French infantry on either flank. Anyway, the French had told the Major not to worry. The newspapers were already talking about peace. Just push the Germans hard and they would run away. Redden wondered. Gunfire announced the dawn, but the shells weren't all American. Just to the west, the Germans attacked the Blue Grays' 113th Regiment behind a heavy barrage. That threw everything out of whack, but the 114th Regiment attacked anyway. Within moments, Redden's company came under heavy enemy fire from three sides. To the captain, it seemed like the heat from a blast furnace door. American artillery had done little to suppress the Germans, and the French infantry had moved only a short distance forward before falling back. Men fell, but Company B kept advancing in short rushes from shellhole to shellhole. The surviving Americans finally took shelter among the piles of French skeletons. Looking up, they discovered that the German barbed wire was entirely uncut. The other three American companies had all been beaten back. Company B was all alone. German machine guns and artillery poured a withering fire into the Americans. During intervals in the shelling, German infantry rushed down from either side of the ravine in dogged attacks. Unable to pull back, Redden and his men stayed there all day, barely holding on. At dusk, the captain called his remaining doughboys together. Out of 200 who entered the Valley of Death, he had 13 men left. Redden never remembered how he and his men made it out of the ravine that night. Some of his boys later told him that he was raving screaming about slaughter and swearing to find and punish the officers who had ordered the attack. Several days later, he recovered enough to return to the lines, but his battalion was gone, annihilated. Redden never forgot the events of that day. In his memoir, Other Men's Lives, he wrote, I have never felt more alone at any time in my life. What happened to me from then on was of no consequence. Death or wounds could not have been worse. In fact, death would have been a relief. Picture, if you can, that terrible ravine full of our own buddies, wounded, dying, and dead. Your boys. Many long, weary months had been spent in training these men so that when they went into battle, they would at least have an even chance for their lives. Now all to be seen was death and desolation, and to hear the awful cries of the wounded, for whom we could do nothing. Like many similar experiences of tragic bravery in the Musargon, the experiences of Company B in the Valley of Death were entirely overlooked by the American media. Only those who were there remembered and paid daily tribute for the rest of their lives. Dr. Edward Lengel is an American military historian and our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. We put links in the podcast notes for Ed's post and his author's website. And that's it for 100 years ago. Now we're going to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. As our regular listeners know, this part of the podcast focuses on now and how the centennial of World War I and the upcoming centennial of the Armistice are being commemorated. This week in Commission News. Now, we already told you about how Bells of Peace is developing into a great national grassroots movement. But there's a lot more going on as we head towards 1111. 
For example, last week, the national hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day social media campaign went live. This is a national, multi-organization effort to create broader awareness about and for Veterans Day. To participate, follow and post under the hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day, which this year, of course, has extra significance as the centennial of the armistice. So we put together a few Veterans Day facts for you. Now, first of all, from the Oh Really department, if you're writing, posting, or tweeting about Veterans Day, no apostrophes. Veterans Day is plural, not possessive. It's not a day that belongs to veterans. It's a day that belongs to all America about our many veterans. So no apostrophe. Next, and many of you know this one. In 1919, on November 11th, the anniversary of the armistice was designated as Armistice Day in honor of the end of World War I. November 11th remained Armistice Day through two more major wars, World War II and Korea. And it was in 1954 when the observance was renamed from Armistice Day to Veterans Day to honor all American veterans from all wars. So, in 2018, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month is the centennial of the World War I Armistice. And it falls on Veterans Day without an apostrophe. There are so many incredible events being planned around the country and indeed around the world to commemorate the centennial of the armistice that we can only highlight a very few of them. But everyone who's holding an event is encouraged to put them into the National World War I Events Register so that your commemoration is preserved in the National Archive of Centennial Events for posterity. If you're holding an event, large or small, please go to www.cc.org events. Click on the big red button and submit your event to the register. Here's a few examples for you. If you're in Honolulu for Veterans Day, they're putting on a really big event there at the Hawaii Natatorium in Honolulu. It's a water competition Olympic training pool that was built as a World War I memorial, and it was also a 100 Cities 100 Memorials awardee. Their events are all built around the World War I Armistice Film Festival, running on a big LED screen between other special events that weekend. Now, those events include a vintage aviation flyover and air show, Bells of Peace, the 111th Army Band, an F-22 flyover, and lots of music, performances, all topped off at the end of the day with a fireworks display. Sounds like a great event. Now, two of the films from our World War I Armistice Film Festival are not only being featured by our festival hosts around the country, but have some special events of their own. Pershing's Path of Glory is having a special premiere showing and VIP reception on the evening of November 11th at the American Film Institute and Cultural Center in Silver Springs, Maryland. You can get tickets for both and meet and toast the cast, the producers, and the creators of this special tribute to the legacy of General John J. Pershing, starting at 6.30 p.m. We put a link to the tickets in the podcast notes or search Google for Pershing's Path of Glory tickets. I tried it. It works. The Hello Girls documentary is winning award after award at the film festivals. And on November 11th, there's a very special performance in France. Elizabeth Cobbs, the author of the book, executive producer and director James Theris, 
Carolyn Timby, who's going to be on the podcast next week, and a few other daughters and granddaughters are all meeting up in Chaumont, France, at General Pershing's former headquarters, for a Hello Girls commemoration. Then they're going to stream the film to the entire city of Chaumont. Okay, let's switch to music. There's a musical event planned for Nashville, Tennessee, that reaches across the Atlantic to invite some Belgian musicians to America's country music capital, Nashville. But it's not a country music event that's being planned. Maestro Rick Giscari and several members of the Brussels Philharmonic Orchestra are bringing over an inspiring international musical event, The Great War in Music, which will play in Nashville the weekend of November 10 and 11. Calling in from Belgium, and with us today is Maestro Gascari. Maestro, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tayo. I'm very honored to be a guest in your program. Maestro, how did this concert in Tennessee happen? Can you tell us the story? Actually, it's a fantastic story. The amazing conductor and friend, Maestro Giancarlo Guerrero, he's a regular guest as conductor at the Brussels Philharmonic. And he's, of course, also the big maestro of the Nashville Symphony. I'm playing regularly the trumpet in the famous Belgian orchestra. And besides that, I'm the chief conductor from the Brussels Young Philharmonic and also a freelance conductor traveling around internationally. Then, via Facebook, I became friend of DG Lester, who has an extraordinary relationship with the Parthenon Museum. Uh, together with DG, we made the plan to put the remembrance of the end of the World War I in the picture with a concert with musicians actually from the home front, where the terrible war took place now exactly 100 years ago. Now, I understand the performance is made up of two pieces by Belgian composers. The first, inspired by a Belgian poet about the World War I experience in Flanders, and the second, inspired by letters of World War I soldiers. Can you tell us more about the pieces you'll be performing? Yes, we play two pieces from the Flemish composer, Piet Zwerg, and Jürgen de Pilesin. Piet wrote a masterpiece called Mother Zonder Meer, Mother No Less No More. Actually, it's about a poem, a mother losing her son during the First World War. The poem is written also by a Flemish poet, Luc van Howard, and Piet Rex did put it on music, a bit like film music. Originally, he used a dance choreography, but on my demands, we changed this with pictures and movies from the World War. For this, we could work together with VOS, the Flanders Peace Organization, also with the Flanders Fields Museum in Ypres. And I think this is a Flanders Fields Museum is very internationally known. And also with the heritage cell, Weerbaar Waasland, who gave us a lot of beautiful pictures taken in the World War itself. Jürgen de Pilesin is the other composer who wrote a composition for peace, Letters from the Soul. And actually for this he used letters from the soldiers themselves as an inspiration. And so actually we give a voice to the soldiers themselves 100 years later. Now you're also using a local youth choir that's part of the performance. I personally think that the voices of children is a wonderful element in a performance about war. What role do they play? We, we use the children choir from Nashville. But the children choir, they sing actually four songs. Of course, they miss their fathers fighting during the war. That's the first song. Second song, they are angry 
at the officers from Germany who do not give proper food to the prisoners. It is wonderful put on music from uh, Jürgen de Pilesen. Uh, but they are happy when a letter arrives from Zadi. And then you hear the ringing of the postman, ringing his bicycle bell, and the piece is ending very beautifully with the hymn piece. Let's hope that we can bring this message to the children and also to the American public, because we are grateful that the Americans actually came to save us. And a lot of soldiers gave their life for our peace and our freedom. Now, you've held this concert in Europe several times. What's the audience response been? The direction is very emotional. They see the picture, they see the movies. It's not easy music to listen to. It's contemporary music. And then all of a sudden you hear this voice of these children and you get emotion. You really feel the suffering of the people in Europe during this war. You feel it. <laughs> Maestro, it sounds like a wonderful program. I'd love to see it. Are you going to videotape it or something? Of course, we already videotaped it in Belgium here, but of course I will also videotape it in Nashville. And you must see it's a total event because you have the orchestra, what I said, contemporary music, and Mm -hmm. then you have this beautiful video with films from the war itself. And one of the films is also about the cemeteries you have in my country, in Flanders, in Belgium. And I remember as a trumpet player when I was young, I went to all those cemeteries you see the beautiful American symmetry with all American soldiers laying there. And when I was a child, I didn't realize this like now, because I went with my trumpet to these cemeteries exactly on the 11th of November every year, and then playing the last post for those people. And actually, now I'm in Nashville to remember this. It's a little bit also for me, it's very special, because as a child, For me, it was like, okay, you get some pocket money as a child to play the last post every 11 November. And now on the 10th and the 11th of November, 100 years after 1918, I can do this wonderful project. I'm very excited. That's a great story. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. And see you in a few weeks in Nashville. Maestro Rick Giscari is with the Brussels Philharmonic. So if you're going to be in the Nashville area on Veterans Day, this promises to be a real treat for you. Learn more about the upcoming concert in Nashville at the links in the podcast notes. And finally, for those of you in the D.C. area, we have another concert event for you. On November 10th, at the Church of the Epiphany in Washington, D.C., the New Orchestra of Washington, the Washington Master Chorale, and Music Viva New York are commemorating the solemn occasion of the armistice with a co-commission from acclaimed American composer Joseph Turin, based on librettos by war poets. The program also features works by Holst and Ravel, both composers directly affected by World War I. You can learn more and find tickets by following the links in the podcast notes. In our Historian Corner this week, We're going back to the Army Center for Military History, the CMH, for part two. As you may recall, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Eric Villard, who told us about the great website resources the CMH has built for World War I. Well, they've done so much great work at the CMH, we wanted to do a part two to further explore the resources the Army's put together about World War I. With us for the second part of the journey is Dr. Brian Neumann historian at the Center for Military History. He's the series editor for 10 World War I commemorative pamphlets. 
the narrator historian of a series of YouTube videos, and the lead historian for four events that the center supported in France and Belgium. Brian, you're a busy man. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Now, Brian, I spent some time with the pamphlets. Uh, they're not only filled with great information, but they're visually really stunning. Could you tell us about them, please? What are they? Who are they for? And what do people get with them? Absolutely. The pamphlets are a part of the center's commemorative element. One of the things that the center does is write the official history of the United States Army. But we also want to convey our history to not only the Army and the soldiers, but the general public as well. So we want some more easily consumable products. And that's what these are. Is The pamphlets are roughly 60 to 70 pages, depending upon the topic. They are targeted at not only the U.S. Army personnel, but also the general public. So really a general readership. And people can get them by going on to the CMH website, which is www.history.army.mil. Now, they'd seem to be a pretty good resource for teachers as well, wouldn't they? I agree. I think that my vision as the series editor for the project was that good basic understanding about what happened or what the United States Army did in the war. Why did we join? What was necessary to actually build up the army? And then how did it actually engage in combat? And then, of course, how did it come home? And we also have a pamphlet on the Mexican expedition. And we will also have one on the occupation and demobilization, along with the concluding pamphlet, which will cover the Russian expeditions, the two expeditions to Russia between 1918 and 1920 or so. So we really want to give a, a good overview of this period. And as a former college professor myself, what I wanted was something that not only an expert like myself can look at and agree with and appreciate, but that really would play to a good general audience. So something that I think could span the gap. And as I said, they're also really beautiful. Thank you very much. All of the map work was done in-house. They're all originals. And all of the images were located either at the National Archives or the Library of Congress. So it's all open source. And with the exception of, I believe, one that we got from a source in the United Kingdom. All of the work is done in-house with the exception of the actual physical printing. But we do produce everything. Now, that leads us to the videos. I have the same basic questions. What are they? Who are they for? And what do I search for on YouTube to find them? The videos are the product of another organization called Defense Media Activity. It is part of the Department of Defense, so it's a little outside of my organization. But what happened is that some individuals at Defense Media approached CMH with the intent to produce a series of small or short informational videos on the war, something that could provide some entertainment and some education, but could be easily digestible in the age of YouTube. So I worked with them in developing the scope of the series and the outline and the content material. And the general audience, I believe, is the same as those for the pamphlets and that it's for not only Army personnel, but also to the general public. And I think that they would also be a good resource for educators. I'm particularly impressed, and I have to give a shout out to the folks at Defense Media Activity. 
I think the production value is truly remarkable, and, and I'm extremely happy with the final product. Well, finally, let's talk about the events in France. The commission was there with you all, and I was too, because I was tracking and aggregating the events on our social media international page. But tell us about them. What the goal of the project was, or the events, was to bring current active duty soldiers from lineage units within both the regular army, the National Guard, and the Army Reserve. So soldiers in units where their units had actually fought in the war or participated in the war to bring those soldiers to France to engage in a series of activities to educate and commemorate those actions. We broke it down into three different types of activities. We would have education days where the soldiers would go on educational tours of battlefields where their units had fought. And then we had ceremony days where the soldiers could take part in ceremonies conducted by the American Battle Monuments Commission at the cemeteries and at some of the monument sites that the ABMC maintains. And I think that that was really a way to show the soldiers the tangible connection to the war and really showed them that we continue to honor the service of their forebears. Now, I saw some great pictures of the troops with some local village kids. That was probably pretty meaningful. It truly was. We did a couple of activities where we did historical marches, where the soldiers actually retraced the steps of some of the advances, and they did these with locals. And some of them involved having a number of school children come out and march along or hike along with the soldiers. We had one recently, the last one we did, we had elements of the French army who were marching with the soldiers. And it was really, really special to have all of the different individuals all come together in commemoration, friendship, and brotherhood. It was truly, truly remarkable. The third type of activity we did were called unit days. And those were where the specific units could do their own kind of commemorative activity. So it was really an element to try and get out and make connections with the communities. Brian, thank you for coming by. Great. Happy to do it. Thank you very much. Dr. Brian Neumann is a historian at the Center for Military History. Learn more about their World War I resources and programs by visiting the links in the podcast notes. A few weeks ago, we did a segment for World War I War Tech about pigeons. Now, it tied in with the famed Cher Ami and the Lost Battalion, and we got a lot of feedback about those birds. Apparently, listeners' heads had been bobbing up and down as they pecked at a bunch of unanswered questions. Well, in the research for that story, one expert name kept coming up over and over again, Andrew Blackman. So here is a follow-up, is Mr. Blackman himself. Andrew Blackman is an award-winning journalist who's been a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, the Des Moines Register. His work has also appeared in the Smithsonian Magazine, the New York Times, and the International Herald Tribune, among others. And one of his books has become the sort of pigeon reference guide. It's titled Pigeons, the Fascinating Saga of the World's Most Revered and Reviled Birds. Andrew, welcome. Happy to be here. Now, Andrew, we've been talking about this interview in our editorial meeting, and I think we're as fascinated by pigeons as the rest of the world. So starting with your book title, why are pigeons revered and reviled? Well, it's interesting. For the vast majority of human history, they've been revered. 
Mesopotamians mentioned them in their cuneiform tablets. They're in Egyptian hieroglyphs. They were seen as fertility symbols. They were the first domesticated bird. They've been used all through human history. Messages were sent up and down the Nile about flood levels, and they've been used during all sorts of wars to help us. Julius Reuters started his news-gathering organization on the backs of pigeons. The reviling is actually quite new. It's only since really post-World War II, and it had to do with just an overabundance of pigeons in our cities. It's mostly an Anglo-American thing in terms of reviling them. And it happened pretty quickly. The pest control industry reviled them as well in their advertisements. When there was so much cheap food around, abundance after World War II, the U.S. was in prosperous times. Bobbit fell on the ground and you ended up getting a lot more pigeons. So that's how they became reviled. Okay, so everybody's got this general vision about homing pigeons. They seem to loyally return to the roost, right? But how do you imprint home on a homing pigeon? It happens automatically. Homing pigeons are a breed within the species of pigeons, and basically they're bred for their homing instincts. Some are better than others, just like some play soccer better than others. They're imprinted the minute they're there. So when you train them, you take them a block away, a mile away, 10 miles away, eventually up to like 600 miles away if they're racers, and they'll just come back home like a laser-guided missile without stopping for food, water, rest, or anything. Now, we were kicking this question around and wanted to ask you, when we did the article, we found these mobile pigeon coops from World War I for messenger pigeons. Now, how does that work for the pigeons if the coop is mobile and changing locations? That was high tech at the time, frankly, at least in terms of animal breeding. The most important thing to know about them is homers don't go from A to B. Homers go from B back to A. Your Reuters would send messages from one place back to the other, and then you would take the pigeons back, and then you would send them back again with news releases. Same thing with the mobile loft, but somehow the breeders, the pigeoneers, were able to acclimate them so that the loft became their homing spot versus a permanent spot. It's just a really tremendous amount of breeding and training acumen. Now, there's a lot of theories about how the birds know where home is. Any current leading theories or even conclusions? There's a lot of theories, and it seems to be it's a combination of all of them. First of all, they seem to have a way to sense Earth's magnetic field. They have little pieces of magnet in their brain, very small specks that work like magnets. They have a very keen sense of smell. They have ultrasound hearing, so they can hear wind passing over the Rockies from hundreds of miles away. And they also have ultraviolet vision, so they can see things that we don't see. So it seems to be a combination of all of it. They're always just trying to get home, and usually to a spouse. Well, does it help if you have the pigeon spouse in the roost? It absolutely does. In fact, a lot of the racers will have them mated with a spouse and then use that as the motivation to get home as well as a good bowl of food. One thing that should be noted about these birds is not only are they incredibly smart, they're also incredibly gentle. They mate for life. They're great parents. They raise the children equally, including even sitting on the eggs. They have a sense of always wanting to get home. Uh, they're really fast too, aren't they? They're incredibly fast. You'll have birds that will get home from 600 miles away from a place they've never been before, not stopping for anything at all, literally from a place they've never been before, 600 miles, and they'll fly home at an average speed of 60 miles an hour. Okay, Andrew, last question. Besides carrying messages, what are the other jobs pigeons have been tasked to do over the years? Well, messages is a big one, and that's how they were used during the wars. 
pigeons in some ways are more reliable than any other form of communication in a lot of ways. You don't need electricity and you don't need like a long extended cable like during the Great War. You just need a bird and a way to attach a message to its leg. So that's basically what they have been used for, for the most part. B.F. Skinner did experiments with them in terms of recognizing patterns. They can be used for spotting a stranded boat in the middle of the ocean. They're also particularly good at spotting anomalies, like if you were to have a bunch of capsules coming off an assembly line, they can pick out the one that doesn't look like the others. But sending messages is critical, and that's what they've been doing. And frankly, they're still being used for that. Saddam Hussein used them to send messages during the war, and the insurgents have been using them in the Middle East since then to send messages. They can't be spied on in the same way an electronics can with satellite to listening device. Well, you can't really make them talk either. <laughs> That's right. Can't make them talk. <laughs> okay, so what else should we think about when we think about pigeons? You know, I'll leave you one story about, I guess, the beauty of pigeons, and it has to do with Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson grew up in Brownsville, which was a really, really tough neighborhood. And he grew up with very little adult supervision. And he was very much trapped in the sense of where he came from. And he developed a hobby, which was working with a certain kind of pigeon called a flight. And flights like to fly in circles and for hours and hours and hours at a time. And so what he would do is he would go onto the roof of the housing he was on, and he would release his birds, and he would watch them fly for hours at a time. And for him, that was the only sense of freedom he saw or witnessed, was his birds flying freely above him, because he had none of that for himself. And he actually got into boxing when some local kids killed one of his pigeons, and he got furious, and that's kind of how his fighting career started. And I should say, too, that in most cultures, they are still very much revered and appreciated. And literally, the fate of thousands and thousands of soldiers have rest upon the wings of pigeons. Andrew Blackman is a journalist and author of the book Pigeons, the fascinating saga of the world's most revered and reviled birds. Learn more about his writing and his books by following the links in the podcast notes. Continuing with our animal theme, for this week's installment of World War I War Tech, we're taking a look at man's best friend. Since we humans first befriended some curious wolves thousands of years ago, we've relied and teamed up with those incredibly loyal and perceptive creatures. And here's the World War I connection. People have relied on dogs as guides for thousands of years, but the first modern school for training guide dogs were founded during World War I in a country that doesn't often get to be the hero in our stories, Germany. One tragic consequence of World War I was a lot of eye injury, with poison gas, shrapnel, shock, meningitis, and trench hygiene, tens of thousands of men lost their eyesight. The story goes that one day an unnamed German doctor witnessed his shepherd interact with a blind soldier in a hospital. Well, a light bulb went off about the potential of dogs to assist men blinded in combat. So in 1916, this doctor opened the first guided dog training school in Oldenburg near northeastern Germany by Bremen. From there, guide dog schools proliferated across Germany, and particularly according to Dr. Mark Ostermeyer, the school located in Potsdam was highly successful and would, quote, come to have a major influence on establishing the first guide dog school in the United States. A woman by the name of Dorothy Harrison Eustace served as a key conduit between the German dog schools and America. 
In the 1910s and 20s, Eustace and her husband trained dogs for the Swiss government at their own facility, Fortunate Fields. In 1927, following a visit to Potsdam, she penned a glowing article for the Saturday Evening Post that described the training and provisions of the German shepherds for blind veterans. Quote, Because of their extraordinary intelligence and fidelity, wrote Eustace, Germany has chosen her own breed of shepherd dog to help her in the rehabilitation of her war blind, and in the lovely city of Potsdam she has established a very simple and businesslike school for the training of her dogs as blind leaders. Dorothy's article didn't escape the attention of one Morris Frank, a young man blinded by two unfortunate accidents. So he traveled from the U.S. to Switzerland, where, under Eustace's tutelage, he meshed with a dog named Buddy. Frank and Buddy came back to America and deftly traversed the busy streets of New York City together, demonstrating that guide dogs could do their job even in the most crowded and hectic locations. In 1929, Dorothy Eustace and Morris Frank co-founded The Seeing Eye, the first guide dog school in the United States. It's another unknown legacy of the war that changed the world. Okay, we've done a lot of stories about our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on local World War I memorials. But it's really important to point out that there are a lot of great memorial restoration projects being done around the country outside of that initiative. And we wanted to profile one of those for you this week. This is a project brought to us by the Georgia Centennial Commission about a memorial effort to remember a group of African-American World War I veterans whose service, like so many of those doughboys, has been overlooked until the centennial. Today, we're joined by Scott Thompson, attorney and World War I historian, Keith Smith with the American Legion, and Buddy Adams, president of the Friends of Veterans. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Now, this project uncovered the names of 21 African-American soldiers from Lawrence County, Georgia, whose names were not included on the memorial near the courthouse. Can you tell us about the project? Yes, sir. This is Keith Smith with the American Legion. We started doing this project roughly about 21 years ago when Scott Thompson began doing some of the research for some of the veterans programs that we do regularly here. From there, the project somewhat grew, especially over the last few years. Right around 2016, the World War I Commission, Dr. Virginia Dilks contacted our local newspaper, who in turn contacted Scott and myself, and we made the conscious decision that we would put together these names and some backgrounds on these individuals, and along with the help of Mr. Buddy Adams, that we would change the plaque over during the centennial, because we thought that would be the most appropriate time to do it. So who did the research? This is Scott Thompson. 21 years ago, when I started my historical writing career, I had a column coming up for Veterans Day. So I went through and found out a list of all of our veterans who had either been killed in action or died during the war and discovered a book that was put together in the 1940s through the help of the American Legion in the state of Georgia. And luckily, our county made a detailed record of every soldier from the county who served with biographical information and made list of those who lost their lives. And they were segregated by white and black. And I noticed that none of the black names were on the monument. 
So as Keith said, way back in 1997, this project started. It kind of lost steam. And then two years ago, with the help of the American Legion, the Georgia World War I Centennial Commission, and Buddy Adams, who was formerly on the county commission of Lawrence County, his project got feet again. And we just completed in the last three weeks a dedication ceremony to honor these 21, possibly even more, gentlemen who lost their lives in World War I in the service of our country. So the rededication, how did the community participate? And I guess more important, how did they react to it? Very well. It grew into something even more magnificent than I even thought it would even be. Johnny Payne, who is part of our United Way, he got together with other important people, like the county commissioners, Ms. Judy Drigger and others, and we were able to get in individuals from our local VA center. For those who don't know, the Carl Vinson Medical Center is one of the largest VA centers in the Southeast, it used to be a naval hospital, and we got great participation from those individuals. The lead chaplain out there is African-American, so he came out and spoke for us. Keith Griffins, another prominent African-American, was here, said a few words, came out for that. We also got the chairman of the VA, Mr. Epps, to come down. The mayor participated. It was a great cross-reference, both African-Americans and young people that came in as well. The DAR dedicated a wreath out there, which was really, really nice. And we had a couple of African-Americans. One was a Marine that also came out and laid the wreath as well. And we didn't leave out the young people. Dublin High School had the choir come out and sing a few songs and dedication for the memory of these individuals. And a young man from West Lawrence High School came out and played taps at the end. And we think it's very important to involve our young people because they're the legacy. We pass this on to them and they understand the importance it is to remember the veterans who have fought and died for this great country of ours. Well, it sounds like an incredible event and recognition and project. Our regular listeners know that in World War I, the Army was segregated, so a lot of valiant warriors went unrecognized. And thank you, gentlemen, for helping to straighten that out. Well, you're welcome. We just thought it was the right thing to do. Another project that we took on here, we have the Tuskegee Airmen that flew P-51s over World War II. As a county commissioner, we named an intersection for these guys. Plus, the original chaplain of the Tuskegee Airmen lived in our community and was a pastor here for 10 years. So we're real proud of our uh, Tuskegee Airmen connection here in Lawrence County. Plus, we've uh, gone and named a lot of roads after our people that's been in the military. We named part of the bypass after Lieutenant Colonel Clyde Stinson, Jr., which was one of the highest-ranking officers killed in Vietnam. So our community is committed to our veterans. With these people that's sitting in here with me and all of the citizens of Dublin, Lawrence County, has our veterans at heart, and we're looking forward to doing other things for them. Well, let me ask you, do you guys have any special plans to commemorate the centennial of the armistice? Absolutely. The VA Center, we do a huge event out there. We get their oratorium every year, so we'll be doing that. We have like two to 300 people coming in for that almost every year. Junior Air Force ROTC in Dublin High School present Retire the Colors. We also have people from Warner Robins Air Force Base come down and speak. And the day before, we're going to have our Veterans Parade. It'll be the second annual Veterans Parade. Took a long time to put that together, but we're finally doing it, and we have a separate parade dedicated to just veterans. This year, just a note and kind of a personal thing here, 
Dr. Roy Rowland will be our Grand Marshal. And I had the honor of the other day giving him a plaque honoring him for 72 years of service to the American Legion and to veterans in local Orange County. Can you imagine 72 years? Some people don't even live that long. I also spent 14 years in the United States Congress in the 80s and 90s. (laughs) That's great. Well, gentlemen, thank you for the great work that you're doing for the Centennial. Thank you for inviting us. Scott Thompson, Keith Smith, and Buddy Adams all participated in a community-driven restoration project in Dublin, Georgia. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program and about the Dublin, Georgia rededication by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to this week's Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases rooted in the war. Let's talk Marine Corps. Marines are called a lot of things, and I assure you, the richest names for Marines come directly from their DIs, their drill instructors, including such delightful endearments as maggot, (laughs) you sorry excuse for a soldier, and so on. But the Marines also have a lot of nicknames, like Leatherneck and Jarhead and so forth. There's one nickname given to the Marines by their enemy in World War I, the Germans, where they earned their reputation as fearsome fighters. Their new nickname, and this week's Speaking World War I, is Devil Dogs. So what the Germans actually called them was Teufelhunde, which translates literally to Devil Dogs, or Devil Hound. Here's a quote from the book Army Boys on the Firing Line, published in 1919 by Homer Randall, which underscores the sentiment of the term. Quote, Well, they thought our Marines had run, too, laughed Frank. But do you see what they're calling them now? Teufelhunden. They're devil hounds, all right. And those dachshunds yelp when they see them coming. And the name stuck. Here's an Associated Press dispatch that appeared on February 20th, 1991, during the first Gulf War. Quote, From the Houston Chronicle, embedded with the 2nd Marine Division in northeastern Saudi Arabia. They call each other Devil Dog and let out rousing barks to boot. Devil Dog, a nickname earned in the heat of battle 100 years ago, and this week's phrase for speaking World War I. Learn more at the link in the podcast notes. You devil dogs. This week in Articles and Posts, where we highlight the stories you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Headline, a first look at the National World War I Memorial. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission invites one and all to a first look at the National World War I Memorial. It's a program that runs from November 8th through 12th at the site of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. A special First Look Pavilion will be open from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. each day for guests to see the memorial model, learn where the memorial will be constructed, and to find out how to be a part of the project. Headline, New National World War I Memorial Design gets key support from the NCPC in D.C., The new National World War I Memorial for the nation's capital achieved a significant milestone at the recent National Capital Planning Commission meeting. The NCPC adopted the commission's revised design concept for the memorial, which will be sited at Pershing Park, just two blocks east of the White House. Headline, Ebony Doughboys participate in World War I centennial events in Belgium and France. 
U.S. ambassador to Belgium, Ronald Gidwitz, joined the Ebony Doughboys, a group of American World War I reenactors, plus local officials and residents from the French border towns to celebrate the liberation of the area by African-American soldiers fighting with the French 10th Army during World War I. The ceremony shed light on a forgotten chapter in U.S.-Belgian history and included the unveiling of a memorial in honor of the American regiment. And finally, our selection from our World War I Centennial Merchandise Shop. Our featured item this week is the World War I Centennial Flag. Now, there's still time to get one of these before Veterans Day. This is the World War I Centennial Flag made of durable nylon that measures 5 feet by 3 feet. There's also a small centennial flag appropriate for burial markers. Hurry and order today to avoid rush charges on the shipping. Links to our merchandise shop and all our articles that we've highlighted here are in the weekly dispatch newsletter. Subscribe at ww1cc.org slash subscribe. You can also send a link request with a tweet at the WW1 Podcast or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what are the posts this week? I've got three tidbits from social media this week to highlight. The first is a cartoon from October 1918, a political cartoon that appeared in newspapers in the Midwest a hundred years ago, as notes were being passed back and forth between Wilson and the Central Powers discussing a possible armistice. The cartoon depicts the Kaiser at the bottom of a deep chasm with a set of stairs ahead of him as the only means of escape. Except the stairs are each labeled as one of Wilson's 14 points. It's the only way out, Wilhelm, the cartoon exclaims. You can see it for yourself in the links in the podcast notes. Secondly, the Facebook page for the group Flanders Fields 1418 published an interesting project recently. Some 600,000 people from all over the world died in Belgium during World War I. On November 9th, empty chairs sent from over 120 countries will be displayed in a park in Belgium to commemorate those who died. The project symbolizes their long journeys to Belgium and how the war left empty chairs at tables across the world. Some chairs that have made the long journey to Ypres belong to World War I veterans, including an American rocking chair belonging to Arthur Neal, a medic in the U.S. Army during World War I who served on the Western Front at the end of the Great War. The chair was sent to Ypres by his grandnephew Rob from Tennessee. If you want to help with the exhibit, you can follow the link in the podcast notes and look at the comments to see which country's chairs are still missing. You might know someone who can help. Last for the week, one of the most popular articles we shared this week comes from the History Channel website. The article, Why October 1918 Was America's Deadliest Month Ever, investigates the great scourge that peaked this month 100 years ago, the flu. Follow the link in the podcast notes to read it. That's it this week for The Buzz. Okay, that's a wrap for episode number 94 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Langell, military historian and author, Maestro Rick Gascari with the Brussels Philharmonic, Dr. Brian Neumann, historian with the Center for Military History, Andrew Blechman, journalist and author, Scott Thompson, Keith Smith, and Buddy Adams, members of the Dublin, Georgia community and participants in the rededication of their local World War I memorial. Catherine Akey, World War I photography specialist and line producer for the podcast. 
Many thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team, to J.L. Michaud for his research, to Rachel Hurt, our fall intern, and I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators and their classrooms. And we're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes around our country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org. You'll find the World War I Centennial News podcast in all the places you get podcasts, and even using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Thank you for joining us again this week. So long.